0: Hey, this is Devin Elder. I'm a multifamily operator in San Antonio, Texas. And if you want to learn about recession-proof real estate investing, please go check out my friend Sam Newell's podcast, Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing.
1: Welcome to the Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. All right, I'm really excited to have our next guest on the show, Devin Elder, Principal at DJE Texas Management Group. He's a friend of mine that uh, I met last December at the Multifamily Boardroom Mastermind Group that is put on by our good friend, Rod Cleef. I was really impressed with Devin and his progression in real estate. He started in flipping back in 2012, then he moved into holding those those single-family flips as rentals refinancing his cash out doing it over again and then soon realized he wanted to go for the economies of scale and the lower risk uh, safer returns that multifamily has and now he's taking down 20 30 million dollar properties on his own with his partners of course he's just doing really great exciting things and uh, the exact type of syndicator and, and investor that I want to have on the show And uh, I feel like we're lucky to have him. I'm excited to hear about his progression from the corporate world into a highly successful multifamily uh, syndicator and investor. All right, let's get started. Welcome everyone to the Recession Proof Real Estate Podcast, how to cash flow in any economy. I've got my good friend, Devin Elder here on the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Sam. How are you? Hey, doing awesome. You and I were just talking about our kids, had a great Wake up call this morning. My daughter got me out of bed early, and we watched Iron Man. So I started the day off right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a good movie. I, I think you had a similar story. You had a six fifteen wake up call with with or something like that with with your daughter.
0: Yeah, yeah, five forty five wake 545. up call, and then she was laughing when I told her I was going to the office. She didn't didn't uh, buy that. And I'm like, no. <laughs> some days I go to the work really early. You know? Well, you you might be.
1: I mean, sometimes the office is the golf course, right? So, you know, she she might have been calling your bluff there.
0: Yeah, that's true. You know, I had an experience with a, you know, I'm always thinking about highest and best use of time, right? How can, uh-huh. I, how can I shed lower dollar value activities and make sure I'm spending my time as the CEO of the company efficiently, so on and so forth. And so one day I'm playing golf with a couple of guys. Mm-hmm. One's a good buddy and one's a guy that I was kind of just meeting. And I was like, hey man, this is, this is literally like the best thing I could be doing is (laughs) with a couple of investors and, and a new potential investor building relationships and playing golf. And I was like, okay, man, I think I made it when playing (laughs) golf with the right guys is like literally the best use of my time. I'm going, yeah, this let's do more of this. This is the way to be.
1: That's awesome, man. I love that. And you know, You're right. You know, it's all about relationships and and doing business with people you like. And, And that's one thing I've focused on the last little bit is, you know, when you get out of desperation mode, when you're building a company into where you're at, where you're a little bit more streamlined, working with people you like, it's a lot of fun. And for me, that's fly fishing. So I'm taking these surgeons fly fishing up in Wyoming, we're freezing our butts off in 20 degree weather, having a blast catching giant brown trout, rainbow trout, and and that's all hope happened over the last couple of years. It's been a lot of fun. So I, I'm with you there.
0: Yeah, that sounds um, like a lot of fun. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's more fun when it's not 20 degrees for sure. <laughs> it just ends up being windy and cold whenever, you know, that's, that's the best time to go fishing, but let, let's take about a 10 year, well, let's go back about 10 years. I want to know where you were at during the crash, 2007, 2008, what was business like for you? What were you doing and, and what did you see going on with other people?
0: Yeah, so I was working for a very large tech employer in my hometown here in San Antonio. A couple of things stood out for me, you know, I remember some of the the C-level leadership of this this tech company I was working for being, you know, pretty annoyed at the recession and saying, hey, you know, people are not placing orders and the the the, the everything's kind of just grinding to a halt maybe just out of fear, right? I mean, uh, obviously the housing market was, was its own thing, but you know, a lot of frustration, I think of, of just, you know, within the company, just seeing everything kind of grind to a halt just because there was so much fear and panic, right? So there was, there was that kind of going on. And then for me personally, just watching my company sponsored retirement account get cut in half. And I was relatively early in my career. I didn't have a bazillion dollars in the account, but still you take away half of Anything and you're going, that hurts. Boy, that really got my attention. So it was around that time, um, 2008, that I was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Tim Ferriss's kind of big breakout book, Four Hour Work Week, which
2: mm-hmm.
0: I think, you know, Four Hour Work Week is, is exceptionally well marketed. And I, I wouldn't say it's like practically the best book ever, but yeah. at that time in my life, it was very motivating. And I think even if something is not practical for you, you know, motivation is really important too. And so Rich Dad oh, yeah. and, and Four Hour Workweek were super motivating to me. And 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 they, you know, it's it set this dream in me to kind of create this life where I had control over my my time and my money. And so that was kind of the genesis of it. You know, reading those books, being inspired. I had a brother who was an entrepreneur and had been inspired by my whole life. And then also seeing the pain of my retirement getting cut in half and going, well, I really don't want to do that when I'm 55, you know, crazy, man. 20s there, but I really don't want to do that, you know, or mid thirties rather, you know, I don't want to do that when it, when it really counts. And so I wanted to right. go out on my own path and create my own um, source of, source of wealth.
1: Wow. So, so, I mean, you felt the recession hard. If you lost half your retirement account, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's a really heavy hit and I'm sure you saw lots of other people, were you in real estate as well back then were you paying attention to the real estate market because I know I wasn't I was a I was a college kid and I heard you know people were making a lot of money in 2006 2007 I was doing summer sales to pay for school and so in 2008 there was less sales to be had just you know, kind of like you're, you're talking about your employers it was frustrating but as far as real estate I didn't really start paying attention until 2008 2009 so so where were you at in your real estate business
0: yeah i didn't really start investing until 2012 so i I did have kind of some interesting experiences we my wife and i got married and we bought our first house in 2007 with basically i think they gave me a a mirror to make sure my breath could fog it and i had (laughs) And that was
1: it, man. I mean, it was called a stated. You have, to have a pulse? Income. That's about it, right?
0: <laughs> yep, stated income. And I said, what Oh is my this? gosh! Well, state your income." I said, "What in this line right here? I just write it, okay?" <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I was naive and young, and I put the right, put the number that I made, but there was like zero verification of it, right? Oh but yeah, it was like, you know, two thousand seven. You're going. Is everybody doing this? because that seems like this could be trouble but you know that was just kind of the the first indication for me of you know stepping into home ownership and i do remember very specifically lying in bed that first night of our like 950 square foot house terrified that i had a mortgage right like, my gosh, I'm married now, I have a mortgage, so much crushing responsibility, which is hilarious because now, you know, I'm looking at a $25 million deal going, ah, okay, we're going to need $7 million in equity. <laughs> you know, the loan's going to be $15 million. Okay. Da, da, da. You know, and it's like a completely ho-hum, which is funny. And you're probably not um, even
1: sweating it, right? I mean, you've done this long enough where you're good Yeah, to go. it's just
0: kind of, it's just kind of business as usual now with more zeros and you just acclimate to it. So 27 first house stated income in 2010, we bought our second house and, you know, had made some money and was upgrading our house and Holy smokes, you know, they wanted, they wanted everything, ton of money down, tax records forever Uh, blood sample, etc. So that was real interesting to see how that did. But I didn't really start investing until I think I was really kind of getting up with fed up with the corporate world. You know, I I feel like I started really strong and really optimistic and energetic in the corporate world. And then Mm -hmm. then over the years that over a handful of years that really started to dwindle, And I kind of started to get jaded to the point where, you know, I, my kind of outlook is now is you've, you've got to have equity in something in life. Right. And, and I saw kind of this IPO come and go on this company that I worked for that I was just too late. You know, if I'd started working for that company earlier, it would have been good. But mm-hmm. I just realized, hey, there's nothing coming for me. There's no IPO. There's no big inheritance. There's nothing coming for me. So I've got to go out and, and make it somehow. And that's how I started getting into uh, real estate. Right. And you'd
1: already lost half your retirement income or, you know, account. So, value. No. Yeah. it. And I feel like there's a lot of people like you who really want to get into real estate and they're feeling exactly just like you. They're in the corporate world. In fact, my very good friend, Grace Sang, she's out of the Bay Area. That's why she got in real estate as well. She'd been in corporate 15 years in the tech industry, really didn't have any retirement to speak of. And, and you know, that's a lot of my investors. They pull money out of their retirement savings or accounts. They're, they turn their IRA into a self-directed IRA. And just like you, they feel like I've, I've got to do this on my own because it's, you know, in the, I guess my dad's generation, our parents' generation, you worked at a company 20, 30 years and, and they gave you a nice pension plan a retirement plan and you could count on that. Whereas, you know, I feel like just like you, a lot of people these days can't count on that. You know, there's companies going bankrupt or they cut those those benefits In fact, my father-in-law just lost all of his his retirement because his company went went bankrupt so I feel like a lot of people are feeling that just like you so so tell me how you got into it you got into it at the right time you know I'm smiling because I bought my first investment in 2010 you bought a property in 2010 but then it sounded like you started investing in in 2012 is that right
0: yeah. Yeah. So we bought our first homestead in, in 2007 and another homestead we moved in 2010. Mm-hmm. First investment property in twenty uh, late 2012, which was just a little rental house. Also terrifying, you know, at the, I was like, man, there's like a $10,000 rehab. And this thing is like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm buying it for $40,000. Now, if I could buy a hundred of those houses again, I would, yep. right? I mean, th- that, that neighborhood is selling for, you know, 200k a house it's crazy right so you know what do they say the best time to buy real estate it was 20 years ago second best time is right now you know right uh, you know there's kind of some element of that the the years go by fast The, the days are long but the years are short and so I think it's important to to start putting something in the portfolio and just buy it and wait, you know, and cash flow it. So started doing that and on the single family side, you know, and really saw how that could create cash flow to replace my income. And that was kind of the first big milestone to uh, to go after. Awesome. And you bought in your hometown,
1: is that right? Exclusively. Yep. Perfect. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of people want to buy that first that single family home, that duplex, that fourplex. That's my background. I started just like you, bought a flip, excuse me. I ended up going into duplexes, fourplexes, and then multifamily. But right now where we're at in the market, prices are are up here. I mean, it's hard to cash flow on a deal. I have people calling me all the time, hey, I want to buy a house. We'll analyze it. We'll run through the numbers and it does not cash flow. So that's one reason I'm pushing multifamily really, really hard is the risk is lower and cash flow is better. So what took you from buying those single family homes? And I'm with you. I wish I would have bought a hundred. The house I bought just sold for over 300,000 in 2010. I bought it for 170. So uh, that would have been nice to buy a few more of those. But tell me about your progression from single family to buying 20, $30 million properties.
0: Yeah. So single family, you know, I th- it started off with me joining a, a club, right? An investor club. And, I, and that was really important for me. And I've since left that club and I kind of see some some flaws in that club and it's not perfect, but I certainly do credit it with getting me around people that were doing it because I think it's so important. There's so many great resources out there to learn, but it's so important to to know people that are doing it and and it's important for many reasons building your network and everything but it's very important from a internal psychology mm-hmm. standpoint to see somebody in the flesh befriend them and going oh they're doing that like no offense but this guy's just kind of a regular guy <laughs> and he's done it and it just makes this it, it makes something click in your brain it's that think makes you think you can do it so i was fortunate enough uh, early to get around a lot of multifamily guys that were doing big deals. And it took, literally took me years to wrap my head around. How are they, how on earth are they not, how can they sleep at night? Right. Knowing Uh that they own a 150 unit apartment complex. Like, oh my gosh. So I started where I was. I didn't have a lot of capital. I started buying houses with hard money, renovating and refinancing out most of my money. And that was a nice little magic trick where I said, wow, I can own these assets really kind of with no money, you know, or maybe, maybe it would leave five or 10 K stuck in the house. My goal was to get my cash out of pocket 10 K or under. And if I was doing houses with only 10 K of my money in it, I could actually, you know, I could do a lot of these things. And so, was fortunate enough to be around multifamily guys and at least start that education very early. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a number of years before I ever did a multifamily deal, but I at least got around it. And then I worked my tail off in the single family while I had my day job, with the goal of saying, "Hey, I need this number of, I need this cash flow number every month," and when I hit that, I'll, I'll quit my job. So, built a bunch of rentals, and then started flipping houses, which is a crazy game. We still play it. It's <laughs> not my favorite strategy, but because right. it, it can bring in big chunks of capital, and that's kind of what allowed me to build up a, this nest to go start going after multifamily stuff.
1: That's awesome. So you're using the burr method where you're buying something, rehabbing it, refining out your money, which I love reduces your risk and really creates almost an infinite return. If your money's all out of the deal,
0: you're making a yeah, return. Yeah, when I learned that trick and you're going, holy smokes, you know, if you've got, I mean, it almost gets comical. If you've got $2,000 in the deal and it's generating 5,000 in cash flow a month in equity, you know, the returns look great. Or, or if you've got, you know, $50 in the deal. You can do the math and the numbers, you know, the, 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 rate of returns are just almost comical, but you know, ideally infinite returns, nothing in the deal. You're paying off the mortgage. You're getting the depreciation passed through to, to you. You're the, these houses are appreciating. It's like, man, what's not to, to love about that yeah. except for the scalability, but on right. a, an investment, a single family rental that you've got no capital in. I mean, it's investment nirvana at least on its, on its own. Right.
1: Right. Right. No. And, and that's something that, that I really wanted to talk about as well is scalability, also the loan types. So are those all, all recourse loans that you have on those properties?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So, so that's one thing that really has pushed me to get more into multifamily and I'm sure yourself as well. It's, you know, you're killing it with that, that business model, the, the Burr method and, and rehabbing and refinancing financing out your money, but you still have that recourse loan that's on De- in Devin's name, on Devin's credit. And if something goes wrong, they're coming to you for money. And I have these high profile investors. They're worth 300 million or 10 million, or they're making a million, 2 million a year as a hospital administrator. They really aren't interested in these recourse loans. And so when I'm telling them about non-recourse and it's a you know, a little bit more scalable, they're very, very excited about it. And I'm sure that's one of the pushes that's pushed you into multifamily. I don't want to put words in your mouth, though. Tell me about scalability and non-recourse and, and what that's doing for you.
0: Yeah. So every couple of months, I have a coffee or lunch with a local banker. You know, it's a friend it's a friend or a referral or, or something. And, you know, maybe they want some of my business on, uh, you know, we do a little bit of new construction and, and things here and there. And so, the conversation always starts with, uh, "Well, geez, you've got quite a large portfolio. Tell me about that." And so I always, you know, the banker asks that, and I always say, "Can you guys do non recourse for me on you know a ten million dollar building?" And and they look at me like I'm crazy, like what? <laughs> and I'm like, I, "I know you can't, but I, I I always have to ask." And they're like, "No, we we can't do that." I'm like, "I didn't think so." So right. that's what I get on these buildings. You know, I get a Freddie small balance loan or Fannie or bridge debt. They're all non recourse, right? And uh-huh. it, that's a hard requirement for me to go do it. So it's just kind of funny that, you know, it's a cliche that, that bigger is easier in some ways. And that's one of them. The loans easier to get, you know, I was doing a loan uh, last year was a, it was like a $5 million Freddie loan. Uh And uh, at the same time I was refinancing two single family houses and I swear the, the, the bigger loan was so much easier to do. And it's <laughs> not recourse. It just really painted the picture for me because they, they both take kind of the same effort. The houses actually took more effort and the, they, you know, the, they're like 200K houses that I'm trying to get right. a 5% loan on. And so and they're, and they're recourse, the house to recourse. So mm-hmm. that's a huge component. If I'm bringing on a key principle to a deal, mm-hmm. um, that's a requirement for them right, is that it's that it's uh, non-recourse, so I love that aspect of it. It allows you to to go out and do multiple projects and, and still have a, a nice-looking balance sheet. And then in terms of scalability, I hit that wall a few years in, and I, I just had lunch with a buddy of mine yesterday who's hitting that wall, and you can just kind of see it unfolding. You go, mm-hmm. okay, wow, I got out of my corporate job. I learned how to flip some houses or do some rentals. This whole real estate world was opened up to me. I, I figured out how to raise capital. And, you know, you're an entrepreneur, all that stuff's really great. But, you know, you're going, okay, I've got X houses. Can, can we double that? And you're going, yeah. the amount of insurance policies and utility bills and different addresses that you're going to have. To it's a double. lot of brain damage. It's a ton of brain damage. And so what I did to solve that problem was I brought on a partner and built out got a whole system and team around that. I didn't want to totally give up that revenue stream, but I had to step out of the day-to-day. I was like, I, I talk about it all the time. It's like uh, you're in the NFL or, or you're a bartender. You know, It's like great money. It's fun. You're rocking and rolling. But man, if you're in the NFL and you think that's going to last for 20 years, like look at the numbers, right? Those guys, right. Up, most of them end up bankrupt and they got a real short shelf life. So I think flipping houses is a means to an end it's a way for one little guy to make a lot of money quickly, but you you better try to get out of it, you know, as, as quick as possible. And so, you know, that's what, what naturally led me to to multifamily where, again, it's almost comical how quickly you can add 150 units to the portfolio and have all the systems and team in place to to run it well and go out and do another one, you know. Absolutely. That's
1: huge. And, you know, Grant Cardone, there there's a reason he says – No one should ever buy 16 doors or less than 16 doors at a time. I think he's wrong. I think he's dead wrong because I've made a ton of money on my smaller flips, just like you and my small duplexes and fourplexes. But his idea is absolutely correct for that reason. He's coming from a perspective of scalability, risk, non-recourse loans, and, you know, he's, he was around during the crash. He had, he had real estate during the crash. You hear him and other people like yourself talking about multifamily and that didn't suffer nearly as bad, not even close as single family homes as duplexes or fourplexes did during the 2007, 2008 crash. And, and so he's got the right, right idea. So I'm, I'm curious what your advice would be. Let's say we've got someone here in the Silicon slopes area, Utah, or maybe even your area, they're working corporate, they, they're they not excited about the retirement plan that this company's giving them, would you encourage them to jump right into multifamily and skip the brain damage of flipping or maybe cut their teeth, learn how to flip, learn how to work those small rentals, and then get into multifamily?
0: Yeah, I have this conversation often with different folks that have a, have a high W-2, Everybody's in a different starting point, and some people are just going to need to start out with sweat equity. So if you are long on time and short on money, grind it out however you have to. But if you've already got a good job, don't start doing something that's less than your current dollar per hour. You know, if you're making a hundred dollars an hour at your corporate job, two hundred dollars an hour, going to flip a house and personally going to it and learning that whole skill set and dealing with contractors. Who, by the way, are not all honest and forthcoming <laughs> business, believe it or not. Oh. Like, di- dipping your toe in that world and trying to do it. Yeah. And I've got a doctor friend of mine who's like, I want to get in real estate. And I'm like, don't mess around with this little stuff, man. It's yeah. just, you're a freaking doctor. You make great money. Yeah. You're taking, I mean, I wouldn't advise you to go mow lawns either. You know, it's like you might be able to. Make some money and, and 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 mow some lawns, but your dollar per hour activity is just going to be really low. So that's huge. I, um, you know, I always encourage people to skip it if they've already got a a good W two. And I like a one. I like apartments for a lot of reasons, but one of the the things is that there's different ways to participate, right? And I always tell people about three steps. Like, if you want to be an operator, that's great. You're not. Don't start there. I mean, there's too much to learn. But if you want to invest passively as a first step very low barrier to entry and then the second step is to get on the management team with another operator somehow and we can talk Mm -hmm. about that the third step is to go be an operator and i think those three steps can be accomplished in a relatively short period of time while you know still doing that high paying job and just jumping into commercial i mean there's so many advantages to kind of just going right at a commercial so i know it's very hard for people to wrap their minds around especially if they're just looking at real estate. I get that. I was there. My first apartment was a six unit by myself because I was scared. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew all the stuff, I was still scared. So I get it. But, you know, I think you're better off getting a small piece of a big deal just so you can start playing in that pond. Because as you know, they're two very different worlds, right?
1: Well, you know, you said some very important things there. I want to recap. Don't if you have a great paying job, don't do something you can pay someone to do for way less. And so that's why I have a personal assistant. I have a transaction coordinator and that's something you have to learn and flipping would fall into that. I agree with you 100%. There's contractors that, um, you're going to have to deal with. and, and You and I talk about where we laugh about honest contractors or contractors not being honest. It's not even that. They can just be unprofessional, waste your time. There can be unforeseen things that take up huge amounts of your time. The city cannot give you, not pass your inspection. Why not take your time and and your money and your expertise and put that into a much larger deal? The same amount of time put in can earn you a lot more money and and i agree with you i think the first thing people should do is find a good operator operator like yourself and say hey i want to i want to learn commercial real estate can i bring you some money can i bring you some time and uh, maybe introduce you to a few other investors like myself and and i have a feeling that you know you would say absolutely you know bring me some investors i will educate you through the process i'll show you what i do and and most people are are very uh, open to teaching others would you agree
0: yeah definitely
1: yeah that 's huge and uh, yeah so so i man that i, I think that 's probably one of the things that i 've done the best in my career is i 've accepted maybe a little bit less of the deal i don 't need the whole deal but with the right partner, and you 're paying for an education right so i 'd rather not lose money i 'd rather make a little bit of money with a partner that 's experienced and and doing things the right way and and there's a lot of wrong ways to invest in real estate. There's a lot of people losing money. I just sold a sixplex near the University of Utah at a 4.5 cap rate. I, I don't know what their business model is. I, I don't know how they plan on making money. Right. Um, apparently they're okay losing money every month because I, I know what kind of mortgage they got and they're a few hundred dollars negative each month. It's just interesting what people decide to do. So on that topic, can you think off the top of your head, maybe the top one or two mistakes you see people making getting into this business and and how to avoid those? And whether you like him or hate him, he's doing a pretty good job for the economy. And And whether that means he's pressuring the Fed into keeping rates low artificially for now until he gets reelected, I don't know but all i know is is we're getting ready for sure for for another downturn so anything we buy like right now i don't know if you have offices doing something similar groups doing something similar unless the asset will break even at 20% vacancy you know right. so in other words it'll
2: still cover its costs being right. 20% vacant we won't look at it right right yeah exactly i think that's a pretty common uh thing right now. I was just telling my brother at uh with the real estate investment we were looking at yesterday that in the model it should be extremely conservative and just assume that 25 to 30% would be empty. So that way mm-hmm. even if 10% is empty, we're still making money along the way just to be ultra conservative, you know, on the underwriting, because it's a new area of real estate investing that he's looking into. So I awesome. think that uh, I think that's a good good assumption to go in with.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. And you know, to be honest, during two thousand eight, two thousand nine, most markets did not get much worse than seven to to ten percent, right. and that's in you know C class and and right. A class luxury. Your B and and good C class didn't suffer a whole lot, but D class had up to twelve percent vacancy. So right. if you're not ready for that, you know that's going to hurt.
2: That's going to yeah. hurt in a big way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you always have to look at the assumptions and forecasts with a critical eye. If somebody is selling you something, because there's never a bad projection, they're never going to say, oh, the worst case scenario (laughs) is that we lose everything. Or the worst case scenario is this gets foreclosed on. Like their worst case scenario is actually still a pretty decent one. You still make a IRR of something positive when that's really not the worst case scenario. So I think that uh, you always have to look at those assumptions. And we looked at hotels before that for a client, And we're looking at an $80 million hotel in California, and the person who is going to acquire it uh, with us said, oh, well, we're going to raise the EBITDA, you know, by X percent per year, and it had been managed by three or four other professional managers, and they'd only been able to raise it a very small percent every year, and they assumed that every single year they were going to be able to jump it up higher, higher, higher. Maybe they could. But but they're different, right? Yeah, they acted like it was (laughs) a sure thing, and it's like, it's for sure not a sure thing. So... Right. You have to put some assumption that's like conservative. Like let's just assume it went just as well as the last guys ran it, and then look at how it does if it goes worse and how it goes if it goes better, because uh, just assuming it's all going to go great, I mean, that's never the case. Yep. No, I I think that's really important.
1: Well, you know, I'm kind of curious. I never pictured myself buying thirty million dollar apartment buildings. I never pictured myself working with family office type investors. Yet here I am, and here you are. What did you want to be when you're growing up? I wanted to be an Air Force pilot and it will kind of end on something fun. But, you know, I was slated to go to the Air Force Academy and fly F-16s. What What were you planning on doing?
2: Really? Yeah. I mean, in high school, I had started a dozen businesses and, uh, you know, so I, I just loved starting businesses. And I grew up reading Inc. magazine and traveling around with my dad to business meetings so that was uh, definitely in my blood. And I was always, I was selling long distance telephone service to everyone in my high school directory. I'd call all their parents and try to sell them on switching over no way, you know, I love phone it. services. So uh, I don't know, I kind of had the entrepreneur thing in my blood, but then my first term in college, I was going to be a computer programmer and then like debugging code 10 hours a day drove me nuts in the computer lab. So I switched over to business. And then even though I was in a school of business that had an entrepreneurial, like big slant to it, and they had an entrepreneurial campus, and everything, uh-huh. I got a formal letter from the dean saying that my access to the computer lab is going to be cut off if I'm caught trying to start a business on university resources again. <laughs> I showed it to all my professors. I'm like, what the hell is this? I thought this was an entrepreneurial school. You know, and they're school. like, stop trying to apply what you're learning in class. Oh, Can't my God. On our
1: computers, right? It's pretty funny. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's You sound like my best friend I grew up with. I mean, he was buying, buying, you know, Oakley's from China, selling them out of a briefcase when we're sophomores in high school. He was figuring out how to make money doing X, Y, and Z all the time. Now he's making, yeah. you know, money online marketing and, you know, sounds very much like you just has a mind for business. And it sounds like that's what you're born for.
2: Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's like a game. I I love playing any type of game—board game, video game, sports games. Like, I can't stand watching sports because I'm like, why am I not playing a game? Why am I staring at these people having fun, right? And so, if I can make business like a game and have fun playing business, and that's kind of kind of the goal.
1: That's awesome. Well, you've done a great job with it. Look, we're we're about out of time. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I'm going to, you know, give you a nice introduction after we jump off. Anything specific you'd like me to tell our listeners about about you and what you do in the intro
2: nothing super specific i mean just that if they are an ultra wealthy family looking for resources our centimillionaires.com website has a whole bunch of free like eight giveaways on that website and that that's the centimillionaire advisors website that's centimillionaires.com uh, that's probably the most critical thing that maybe i didn't mention earlier but otherwise you know whether you're raising capital or investing capital, I think it's just really high integrity is what leads to good results. So if you're true to who you are and what your background is and what your strengths are, you'll do better as an investor. And same if you're trying to raise money. You know. Thank you for saying that. Oh my gosh, I'm going to repeat that in your intro
1: for sure because that's huge. I'm watching a company right now that I, I used to work with or work closely with. They're struggling with with integrity and and doing the right thing, and it's sad to watch. It's frustrating and. You and I, I'm sure, have both rendered that in our careers. So integrity is yeah. huge. That's I'd rather, I'd rather. I tell my clients all the time, I'd rather lose a deal, lose a commission, than, than do one that I don't feel good about or don't feel like you should do. And right, and it's always more important than money. And then if you have that, it's funny how if you have that attitude, money will find you. You know, yeah, your exactly. clients will find you, and they'll come back. And I had a client, I, I warned them not to do a deal, and. They did it anyway. Six months later, they're like, wow, well, we fired our realtor and you're a guy now because we sure got hosed on that deal you told us not to do. Right. Uh, right. right. Yeah,
2: for yeah. sure. It comes around. You can
1: be chasing money or commissions, you know, doing the right thing. So.